Hey everyone, my name is Jason Parker, and I want to welcome you to the Coastal Church Podcast. I'm super excited for you to hear this message. We believe that God wants to speak to us, and we hope that you're open to hear what He has to say to you today. Enjoy. Do you ever uh, find yourself in a room that you're not supposed to be in? That's kind of how I feel tonight. Uh, I'm not supposed to be here. Jason is supposed to be here. Uh, Jason got the flu, and our text chat started going back and forth yesterday mid-morning, and the conversation started with him messaging me, I'm not doing so good. I said, well, you need to decide just how good you're doing. And so uh, by about 5 o'clock, it was, I'm really not doing good. And so I said, well, I guess uh, I'll jump in the car with Tom, and we'll head down uh, to Barrington. I think there's a pad on still, bud. There it goes. Perfect. Thanks, guys. I mean, I'd like to be serenaded the whole time I talk, but uh, that might trick my brain a little bit. And so uh, Jay and I swapped back and forth a few times, and uh, finally he was like, I don't think I can pull this together. Which is interesting, not about Jay being sick, but I think God has a sense of humor. Do you you believe that in your theology? So you believe it more than the first service did, just so you know. They barely believed it, but you sound like you really believe it. So here's the kicker. As Jay is messaging me saying, I don't think I can preach at Coastal, I'm thinking, well, I'll preach two times in Yarmouth and two times at Coastal. And the kicker is, I don't want to preach to any of the rooms. I don't want to preach to you tonight, just so you know. But if it makes you feel better, I don't want to preach to my room this morning. The passage I have to dig into, I don't want to. I'm not afraid of it. I don't like it. Like as an ordained minister of the Wesleyan Church, I know what the Bible says. I've read it. I understand it. And I've built my entire life actively not doing it. That's called being disobedient. You know that, right? So I am opening to say... I am coming to you as not somebody who has figured this out, but as a repentant sinner, because I hate this topic so much. I don't want it, I'm not interested in it, and I'm guessing I'm not alone. How's that for an opener to a sermon? (laughs) Now, Isaiah chapter 9, and you're about to feel what I feel, I think, as we unfold this passage but I believe God's got a word to say. So if you have your Bibles or your iPhones, uh, whatever you bring with you with the scriptures on it, and I hope you do, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2, the first parts may not sound familiar, but the back half, I think, will, will sound very Christmassy in Advent. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness On them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod for his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now the familiar part. For to us a child is born, 
And to us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And every Jewish person said, Amen. I don't know how many Jewish people are in this room. But if you were a Jewish person, when this was dropped and read before you, this was cause for celebration. The Jewish people lived under oppression, under attacks, under defeat. They had this constant up and down, celebrated, sent to exile, brought back. They had a terrible existence under other nations' rule and reign. But there was this this belief, this prophecy that the Messiah was coming They would have a leader who would rule them with a scepter to be their government rep. He would rule them to be their warrior with a sword in the other hand. And the Messiah would come and flip the government, flip the military, put God's people back on top. He would redeem them and save them from the nations. This was spoken of. This was longed for for generations if you were in church last weekend, you may remember that Jay said we were we are created to be people of longing. Part of Advent is that we long for something and we anticipate something in the future. When we light the Advent candles, we light the hope candle as meaning we hope for a better day. Do you ever hope for a better day? Imagine being an Israelite person where you've been kicked and punched and spit on, and they keep telling you the Messiah is coming. And then Isaiah stands up and says, a child is born. Oh, yeah? Like, sweet. He's here. But unless you lived north of 700 more years, you never saw this happen. I don't know about you, but that begs some questions. What do you do when God shows up and he says, I'm going to do a new thing and you never see the new thing come true? What do you do when God says there's a better day in front of you and you never actually get to step into the better day? What do you do when you long to see something in the future be better than it is in the present, but the longer you wait, it doesn't seem like you're getting any closer. Does that sound familiar? Do you long for better days? Do you long for better lobster prices? We can be real here, right? You know what it's like to long for something. The question is not, what do you do when you long for something? What do you do when you're longing and it's not getting any closer? It's not happening. It's not moving into a reality. And the longer you wait, you notice a negative thing happening to you. Or maybe it's just me. But when God says he's going to do something, or better yet, I pray and think he should do something forward, hope-filled, and he doesn't do it, I get cranky. I get cynical. Faith starts to wobble. 
Sometimes, if I'm really spiritually and holy, I just change my mind. <laughs> Have you ever changed your mind with God because he wasn't doing something? She's like, I'll just pick something else. <laughs> well, if you're not going to do that, let's just do this over here. And sometimes we just get apathetic. I think the church is full of people who are apathetic. Do you long for God to do something? Well, maybe. Do you think he can? I don't know, probably. There's the spirit. <laughs> it's not actually apathy. It's discouragement. It's like, ah, I did. I prayed for something. I prayed that God would heal so-and-so, and the Bible says that if I have the faith of a mustard seed, that I could pray and move mountains, and the mustard seed was barely even noticeable. I prayed, and God didn't do something, so what's the point of praying? Yes? I don't know about you, but I would swap mustard seed out for Mount Everest. See, if my Bible and your Bible said, if you pray with the faith the size of Everest, then God will move. Like, well, I don't have that, so no wonder God doesn't move. I don't know what to do with the fact when the bar seems so low when I meet it and God doesn't do anything. I don't know what to do when I pray for a marriage to be restored and it doesn't and the marriage isn't neutral. It's my parents. Well, God, you're good, you're powerful, marriages are of you, so get to moving. Yes? And the longer he doesn't, I get cranky, I get angry, I get cynical. Faith starts to wane. Now, before you think we're just rotten, low-faith, weak Christians, the Bible even says in Proverbs, hope deferred, hope pushed out, makes the heart grow sick. So some of you have longed for things, have had expectations of God, it didn't happen, he didn't do it, and it did something to you on the inside, right? Merry Christmas, Jay, this is supposed to be your sermon. <laughs> Isn't that the kicker, though? Every single one of you in here, you have longed for something. You wanted God to do it, and he didn't do it. And then you came to church, and some talking head got up and says, God is good all the time. And you're like, Pff. Right? I want to yell out sometimes, what about when he isn't? Because I've got a laundry list of things that a good God should have done a good thing about it, and he didn't. Am I the only one in the room feeling this? So the question becomes, then what? My fear is that we stop longing. These people longed for the Messiah, thought it was going to happen, and 700 years later, it happened. And in the meantime, when you long for something and God doesn't do it, there's actually something we're supposed to do. When you long for God to move, when you pray for him to move, when you suffer an injustice, when something happens that's not right, there's something you're supposed to do, and most of us don't do it. 
Most people, when they face an injustice, they just keep a stiff upper lip. When you're suffering and struggling and God not answering your prayers, one of us obnoxious Christians will show up to your funeral of your loved one, not your funeral because you wouldn't care at that point, <laughs> a funeral of your loved one. While you're grieving, we will say something ridiculous like, don't worry, everything happens for a reason. And you just want to punch them right in the nose. You're grieving, and someone says, better days are coming. God's got a plan. And you're like, one more word, and I will slap you. They're not wrong. They're just mistimed. There's a time for that, but it's not now. And when God's got a gift for us, the problem is we don't want to go there. We want to wrap it in the power of positive thinking. Grin and bear it. Keep your chin up. And we do all this stuff when God's not working that makes it worse because what God is actually calling us to, when you're suffering, when you're grieving, and when things aren't happening the way you thought they were, you're actually invited to not smile, to not believe there's a better day coming. You're invited to lament. Do you know what lament is? Most people don't. This is my fourth sermon, and most people have been like, I have a vague idea. To lament means to weep and wail and shake your fist at grief, mourning, injustice, or the wrongs in this world. To let it rip. And the problem is, we don't want to go there. We just want to, I can take this. And then you go through scripture and you flip through the pages and you bump into people and lamenting is such a normal part of our faith. Kings who lead poorly go into seasons of lament. They call nations into lament. People who lose children go into lament. People who are confronted by their own sin go into this weeping and wailing and embodying the pain and the mourning and the hurting they're actually feeling. And we tend to numb out or cope. And God says, no, I want you to lament. I want you to go all the way into the pain. And I don't know about you, we don't give people space to actually mourn and grieve and lament. Part of the reason is it makes us uncomfortable. It's messy. It disrupts rhythms. So if you're grieving, could you hurry up and do it quietly? Because <laughs> it's weirding me out. But in scripture, it's like, no, you need to go all the way into it. If you didn't know how to lament and mourn, you could hire professional mourners to come around you and help lead you through the mourning process. Like, I don't know how to do this. So someone would lead you and guide you. Now, if this is like, I'm not tracking this sermon for Christmas. I think there is a gift and a blessing in lament. I think if we're going to be people who long and anticipate for a new day, we must learn how to lament. One of the blessings of learning how to lament is that it invites us to be honest with God. And I've been in church my entire life. My, my, my dad's a pastor. My grandfather's a pastor. 
uncle's a pastor, cousin, like it's in my blood the way fishing is in some of your blood. And I've been around church people my entire life, and I will say this almost unequivocally, Christians would rather be nice than honest. And it's killing us. Christians would much rather be honest and polite instead of being honest. And so you go to a prayer meeting, and it's all nice. Dear Jesus, be with me today. Give me a good sleep. Keep me safe. Take care of my kids. It's all polite and nice. You go to a small group, and you're studying about how a good and powerful God allows evil and injustices in the world. And people do the song and dance, and they answer from their theological backgrounds that fit their nice, neat box. But no one loses their freaking mind in the group because they're nice and they're polite. And people who go to churches for years, when they have conflict, they don't actually sit down with the pastor and have conflict. They just kind of vanish because they'd rather be nice and polite to the pastor than to have an honest and meaningful conversation. And people in the church stop talking to each other because that would require confrontation and honesty, and that might get messy. So let's just be polite. We'll talk with them behind their back, but not to their face. I know it's not a Barrington thing, but in Yarmouth it's a thing. (laughs) And then we come to God, we do the nice thing. And it's kind of like all the chitter-chatter in the foyer out there. It's all the right things you say. And you go to God and you do the right kind of dance in front of him the whole time, missing the invitation to be honest. Now, if your theology does not give you a place to be honest before God, you've left pages of your Bible unread. You go into the book of Psalms and Lamentations and read where people let it loose, it's, it's chilling. You go to Psalm 109 tonight when you get home. Just give that a quick read before bedtime. It's real cheery. <laughs> King David is writing about an enemy in his life. You ever had an enemy in your life? I said, be honest. Come on now. Stop being polite. <laughs> Two. <laughs> so there's David. He's got his papyrus and his pen, or he's probably got someone writing it for him. You go read Psalm 109, and there's King David writing these words. Dear God, you know I have an enemy. Make his children fatherless and make his wife a widow. When I close this service tonight and I start praying like that, you'll hear a pin drop. Dear God, you know the captain of boat so-and-so. Make his children fatherless and his wife a widow because he dropped his line across my line. That's right. (laughs) Right? And we're thinking like, oh, I don't think we can do that with God. God is bigger than your anger. The purpose of Psalm 109 is not for us to build a theology of prayer. (laughs) It's to teach you that God is bigger than what angers you. I am so thankful that God can handle and listen to my prayers without being compelled to answer them. Right? We get the invitation to walk before God, put the gloves on, and lose it. God, I am angry. Like, well, I might swear you won't be the first. Let it rip. 
The second thing of blessing when we get to lament and realize the gift of lament with our God is the blessing of his presence. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus is teaching on the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now there are times where people have taught that of like these are the keys to blessing. That's not what it means. These aren't the keys to blessing. These are the realities of blessing. And so if you say blessed are those who mourn, it might actually be better to say mourning has a blessing. When you mourn, there's a blessing coming because when you mourn, it allows God to comfort you. As long as you think you need to white-knuckle it, strength of your back, grin and bear, hunker down to take more, take one again, you are basically telling God, I've got this. I can handle this. You stay there. I'll let you know if I need you, but I don't need you right now. Part of mourning, part of lamenting, part of shaking your fist at God at the injustices, the hurts that you have been through is saying, God, I need you to heal me in ways that I can't do this myself. I am busted, I am broken, and I lack. And then Jesus is like, oh, well, now you're mourning. Oh, there's blessing coming to that because if you're in a position of mourning, now I can move. And we miss some of God's presence and some of God's blessings because we're too busy holding on and keeping control. The third blessing that comes from lament, and this one's a bit tricky, but hang with me. One of the blessings of truly lamenting is that truly lamenting is the pathway to experiencing true joy. So a bit of a side detour. Like I said to you, I was born into the church and it's almost like I was programmed to be a pastor, like generations of passing down genetic code to be a pastor. And we were taught things like, you don't gripe and complain because that's negative behavior. That's, you don't need to gripe, ye of little faith. I was taught as a young person that when I was in rooms, I was to be a leader and an example. People needed to look to you for strength. And then I became a pastor and found myself doing funerals for stillborns and babies and children. And people were like, well, you can't be crying up there. You gotta be a rock. You gotta be strong for the room. They're not there to minister to you, so pull it together so that you can lead the room. And while there are elements of truth in there, what happened was I figured out a way to say, well, if pain is negative, let's just shut that off. If I need to be a leader and a pastor to these people and I need to bear their burdens and they look to me as Mr. Positivity, then I'll just turn the pain off and let's turn the joy wide open. Now, wouldn't it be phenomenal if you could live compartmentalized lives? Wouldn't it be phenomenal? I think it would. Anybody here interested in shutting off pain? Opening the floodgates to joy? Yeah. And so I spent like 15 years experimenting. <laughs> Let's just shut the pain off. Someone said, write, writes me an email that's insulting. That's all right. I'll just turn the other cheek. We have injustices or the government does crazy things or people die or marriages are this. I don't feel it. God's got a plan. And here's what happens. You're not a compartmentalized person. When you stop feeling pain, you will stop feeling joy. You are a whole person. 
I promise you, if you start practicing numbing out in parts, you will numb out in full. You have to feel the pain to give God the permission to heal you so you can feel the joy. That's the only way it works. Now, the question is, how do we do this without this is becoming a disaster? The first thing I would say is, as it turns to spiritual formation, how does the church practice lament? You have to take it to God first. We're in a time where people take things to people immediately. People are posting things on Facebook before they even think. We take things to God first because he's God and you all are not. If we skip God, we start to complain to the people who have no power to actually do anything about it. Why not take our deepest hurts, our deepest pains, and take them to God the Father who has the power to heal and make you whole again? To say, this isn't fair, this isn't right, I suffered an injustice, and give it to him. He says, ah, blessed are the morn, let me do something in you now. Otherwise, if you don't take it to God, I am promising you, you will suffer injustices, and most of you have. Most of you have suffered the results of sin, unmet prayers, unmet expectations, and what happens is those are little knife wounds on your body. There are hurts and wounds that you have been through. It's like a knife cutting you, and you are bleeding from the wound you have been through. And if you don't take it to God, the only one who can heal you, what you will inevitably do is walk through your life bleeding on relationships in every room you step into. I say this with all the love and grace. I don't know all of you here, but I'm, I've been in the church long enough. Some of you are bleeding from wounds that happened to you back in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And the t- like, what happens is if you don't lament and feel it and embrace the pain, God can't heal it. You just kind of like, I'll deal with that later. I'll, I'll get to that later. And you're still bleeding. You're still defined by wounds that happened to you years ago. It's all through the church. When you take it to God, you're asking the great physician to actually meet you in your pain. Now, the second thing is you do need community. You do not need social media. Hear me loud and clear. Part of lament is take it to God and then take it to godly people. When I sit in my office and chat with people about what they're going through, I hear two primary people groups that people take their pain to, their family and their coworkers. I'm not sure I like either of those. I'd rather people just say godly people because the irony of taking it to their family is, well, let's be honest, half your family's crazy. <laughs> More than half. <laughs> and then people say, I take it to my coworkers. Are your coworkers believers? No, but they're great listeners. That's not what you need. You need godly community. When you sit down in front of somebody and you lament, you don't need them to rescue you. You don't need them to fast forward it. You don't really need them to do anything but sit beside you 
And if and when they pray because you've lost all faith, you've lost hope, or you've been kicked in the teeth so hard you can't get your own prayers out, you'll know their godly community. When they start praying, it's like they've stepped into your burden and they're praying the things you wish you had the strength to pray. And you know they're a godly community because in your hurt and in your pain, you're holding the gas tank and the match and they say things like, burn it to the ground. They don't want you to burn it to the ground, but they're letting you feel the pain. You don't need to be rescued when you're in lament. You need someone to sit beside you and say, I'm with you. When Paul says carry one another's burdens, that's what he meant. He does not say rescue one another from your burdens. Carry, walk beside, shoulder this. If you're bleeding, I will bleed with you. And I will sit here as long as you need me to. Someone stopped me after the first service. It's like, how long do you lament for? No idea. But the third formation piece of lament is you have to take it to a conclusion. When you go in scripture, they lament, they weep, they wail, they cover their head with sackcloth and ashes, and they do all the stuff to lament. And then they shower, wash their face, get dressed, and step back out. I think what happens when we don't properly lament is that we substitute lament for complaining and griping. I know nothing of lament, but if you want a great gripe session, buy me a coffee. (laughs) If you want to complain about the government, buy me a coffee, put a quarter in, I'll join you, and we'll riff for an hour. If you want to complain about your sports team or the fishing price, I'm in for complaining because complaining is cheap. Anybody can complain. Anybody can gripe. But to lament, to feel it, to stare it in the face, to let it do its job and then say, that's closed. See, we used to do funerals slower. Now we rush them. And people are skipping processes now. I've done more funerals with crucial pieces dropped out because it's not convenient anymore. People don't even say death anymore. We used to know how to mourn and lament and sit and weep and wear black and have family time. And now we've too modernized it. We've swept it all under the rug. And people are carrying hurts around for years. And I'm telling you, this is a room full of people who have had hurts in your life. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't grin and bear it. Don't keep a stiff upper lip. Don't plaster Bible verses on it to skip lamenting. If you do that, it won't just hurt your lamenting. It will hurt your ability to long for a preferred future. It will rob you of the ability to say, God, I still hope and long for a better day coming because you're God and you're good. And part of the lament was to stare the injustice in the face and say, I have wrestled that to the ground. Now, God, let's get back on the mission that you're leading us in. You're still good. You're still God. And I will not stop hoping for a new day. 
We really hope that this message is motivating you to go deeper in your relationship with Jesus and has inspired you to join us in our mission to take Jesus into every community of Southwest Nova. If you have any questions about the sermon, if you want to know how you can get involved, send us an email at office at coastalchurchns.com. We'd love to get connected with you. Have a great day.